Hey everyone, in a little over a week, I'm going to be heading to Sandy, Utah to present at the Restore Conference that is October 13th and 14th. And this is the second uh, Restore Conference that Faith Matters is putting on. And last year, just like this year, they had an incredible lineup of deep thinkers and uplifting musicians and just a remarkable two days. I absolutely loved it. Um, it far exceeded my expectations, and I am really looking forward to going again this year. Um, today, we're releasing the presentation that I gave at Restore last year, where I spoke about the integration of spirituality and sexuality from an LDS theological perspective, and how through our own moral and spiritual development, how these two become clearly two sides of the same coin. And so that's a 30-minute presentation that you're, you can listen to now. Um, if you'd like to come to this year's Restore, uh, you can use the code JFF and use the link in the show notes to purchase your ticket and get 20% off that ticket. I'm going to be, I've been asked to speak about Eros energy, which Eros is the root of eroticism and its relationship to spirituality or the light of Christ and how these two seemingly um, uh, opposed concepts perhaps are actually very much in line with each other. And so I'll be talking about what that expansive, transformative, transcendent energy is about and how it is related to our spirituality and our ability to find solace and peace in the world. So I hope to see you there. And um, it's going to be a great uh, a gathering. And again, you can use the code JFF to get 20% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. So I am working on a book that's basically an, an argument for or a way of thinking about how our theology is, um, provides for a deep integration of spirituality and sexuality that we have this beautiful um, um, understanding of both embodiment as not only not a, something that interferes with spirituality, but essential to our spiritual development. And we have a theology of eternal progression and very much a relational theology, that love is our highest aim that love is what anchors and propels this progression that our earthly existence is so much about. And so this, hang on, okay. So this, this theology of embodiment is especially remarkable because many Christian interpretations of the body is that it's, it's Satan's playground. It's the idea that the body, the passions, that they interfere with our spiritual lives, that it hinders our ability to know God. And, and yet we understand that not only is the body not an impediment, but it's actually critical to us being able to be agents in the world, to choose to become more like our parents in heaven, and to learn and love through the body. So given that we have this amazing theology, why 
do so many Latter-day Saints, why am I so popular? <laughs> why do so many Latter-day Saints struggle on this front, right, to, to create any meaningful peace with their sexuality? Because we value marriage as well, and even recognize the legitimacy of sexuality in marriage, and yet, Many people struggle in either repression of their sexuality or some version of compulsivity around their sexuality or vacillate between the two, but struggle to find any meaningful peace or deep connection to their sexual being and to their spouse. And so I want to talk about this from a frame of looking at stages of development. So we are here to grow line upon line into wiser and more loving beings. We understand that as part of our purpose here. Um, there are a lot of theorists who have laid out the way that that progression happens. You have Kohlberg's theories of moral development, you have Fowler's stages of, of spiritual development. Um, I'm gonna be talking mostly about Robert Keegan's work. He, comes from the frame of ego development, or that is how we relate to our sense of self and how that shapes our relationship to others, to our morality, to our sense of God, and to our sexuality, right? So that it really comes from this understanding of ourselves. And so he talks about it in five stages of development. I'm taking, basically, I'm, I'm turning it into three stages to keep it simple. Um, and I'm just going to talk to you about how, what these, each of these stages are like and how they shape how we think about ourselves as sexual beings, how, they think, how we think about who God is or what God expects from us in a sense, and how we relate to one another from these frames. Now, we, we must go through these stages, and when we go from one stage to the other, we integrate it and transcend it, but it's always a part of us. And in stressful moments, we all quickly regress to stage one, okay? This is why civil society can fall apart rather quickly. Um, but the more developed you are, the more ability you have to handle um, your life and to stay in your higher self despite those pressures to pull you downward. Also, not everyone moves through the stages. Um, because if you've grown up in a family home environment that's more chaotic or cruel, you may struggle to have the order and organization that you need to move to a higher level of understanding of who God is, who you are. Um, and the, the third thing I would say is that we may move ahead in some areas of our life but stay tethered in, in other areas. And sexuality, I think many Latter-day Saints move ahead in some areas, but their sexuality often gets stuck in this more fear-based frame. And I think one of the reasons is because sexuality is so central and core to our sense of self that it's, um, it's, it's harder, I think, to come into a place of acceptance and a willingness to be knowable in this way. So I think because it's m more frightening for us, we tend to not evolve as readily in the sexual realm. So the first stage is what I call the egocentric stage. 
And we have no choice but to start out egocentrically. That is, we don't know the world except from the frame of our own experience in the beginning. And so we understand the world as it affects us. And so we are self-preoccupied and we're focused on our own desires and impulses and feelings and we're very concerned with keeping ourselves safe, like keeping ourselves, you know, uh, okay. We're looking after ourselves at this point. And so we understand that we are in a larger world in which, you know, authority figures and so on. We can get in trouble. We can have bad things happen to us. And so we're very attuned to um, what other people want from us. And, um, and so a lot of times we, our sense of right and wrong is really determined by not wanting to get in trouble. And so um, this is, uh, so we want to avoid people being upset with us. This is um, a story about me when I was little. <laughs> um, I had just learned to write my name and so I wrote my name on the wall behind the couch with a backwards J. And um, my older brother said, you know, hey, Jennifer, did you write your name on the wall? And so I'm sitting there thinking, do I want to tell the truth or not? And he said, listen, you won't get in trouble if you tell the truth. The most important thing is you tell the truth. So I thought about it a little bit more, and I was a child of little faith. And so <laughs> I said, uh, no, actually, Carl did it. So I pointed to my brother who's crawling on the floor. Um, <laughs> that uh, I was framing him. So in this stage, you know, you're not yet able to really think about what your impact is on others. You're not thinking about how your actions might affect another person. You're thinking about how they affect you. So. Um, Okay, so um, now, again, most people um, are able to grow around age seven or eight into more relational awareness. They're more able to think about how their actions impact others, and I'll talk about that stage more in a minute. But, um, but if people, again, are in an abusive home, a chaotic home, the sense of um, consistency that you need in order to learn how to regulate your impulses and regulate your feelings to grow into that deeper awareness of others sometimes doesn't fully become possible for a child. And so a percentage of the population stays in this stage of, of egocentrism in terms of how they think about morality. So someone in this stage might well be quite focused on authority figures. They're looking externally to regulate their behavior. Um, this is often how people relate to their sexuality, right? They're going to a bishop, an angry spouse, you know, a sponsor. There's an external authority that they utilize to try to help them regulate what feels like impulses out of control. And so, um, and if they're relating um, in their marriage, how they relate to other people is somewhat of what um, Kohut, a post-Freudian theorist, called self-objects. That you think you care about others in as much as they serve you or in as much as they reinforce you, right? You're looking for that reinforcement through others. And so you may well then also be sexual in this way, right? that this is a way to get your needs met, 
to be gratified, but you're not really in a position yet to care about your, effect, your impact on another person. So, um, and so this, can ex this self preoccupation can express itself either as indulgent behavior, you know, gratification seeking behavior, or it can also be in the form of repression. So, for example, I had a client who grew up in a very authoritarian home, and she, her parents, when she was 16, she had a nice enough boyfriend, uh, but her parents were terrified of her emerging sexuality. And so they were accusing her of having sex with him, even though she wasn't, and you know, restricting everything she did and, and excessively punishing of her. And so that, coupled with lessons at church, teaching that you, know, you can lose your value by being too sexual, she, out of her, her safety needs, her desire to manage her own interests, right, shut her sexuality down completely. And so, you know, going into marriage, she felt broken because she had shut it down so completely that she really had no basis in which to engage a sexuality that she never dared to integrate into her sense of self. And, you know, a lot of people are teaching sexual morals from this frame, this very dualistic frame where the experience is, for many people, sexuality really is a threat. I feel out of control, or I'm going to lose what really, you know, I'm gonna lose the acceptance of others or safety if I'm sexual, or I feel like I can't manage this part of myself. And so it really does begin, it's really experienced, or if one is sexually abused, it's experienced as completely antithetical to the spiritual or to the good. And so there is no um, overlap for someone in this mindset around sexuality between sexuality and spirituality. You are either good and, re and stepping away from the sexual or you are bad and indulging the sexual. Okay, so I feel like I'm in a class. Questions? No, we're not going to do questions. Okay. So um, the second stage I want to talk to you about is what Keegan calls, well, he calls it the stage of the socialized mind. I'll call it the social stage. That is, you know, we start to become aware of others, and we become more concerned with how we impact others. And we move from this me focus to a we focus. In that shift, we become very concerned with belonging, right? We want to belong to our group, to our family, to others. And an important way to belong is to learn what the rules are of the group. What makes you acceptable? What makes you worthy, right? What makes you uh, the right kind of person that you won't be um, thrown out of your this social group? And so, we uh, belong by learning the rules, right? What are the mores of the group? We learn rules like the law of chastity, or we learn, um, you know, the golden rule. We learn ideas about who boys are supposed to be and who girls are supposed to be. We start thinking in terms of roles, okay? So in this stage, we can't yet think for ourselves, right? We need this stage. We, we, in order to be able to think for ourselves, we need to first start with inheriting the thinking 
of the people that we live amongst. And so we, our sense of self is deeply shaped by how others feel about us. And this is what Murray Bowen called a reflected sense of self. You aren't yet capable of holding a sense of self outside of how others feel about you. And so you look to others to know who you are. So if an adult says, hey, you're good at math, that becomes internalized as a self-concept of I'm good at math because others say I am, right? Because others experience me this way. So, um, and so um, what people get, usually get married in this stage, okay? Um, and well, if they're lucky, they're in this stage, they may still be in stage one, but, but if, it's usually in the frame of needing and needing to be needed. Right? How many of you out there married someone who you thought needed you so they wouldn't leave you? Right? On some level, they would depend upon you, or they at least needed to be needed by you. They, they felt good at being the stronger one, stronger than you, helping you find your way. Often people are creating these roles or dependencies as a kind of safety mechanism because their sense of self does live in the other person, and they're afraid of the exposure of marriage and the exposure of sex, and so they're looking for some way other than just whether or not I'm acceptable enough in, in all of my imperfection. And so in the church, we're very good at helping people move to this stage of development, which is not a small thing to say, right? The church is good at teaching us our sense of responsibility to one another, what our roles are, how we can serve one another, Ideals around marriage are very much in this frame of taking care of one another's needs, playing out your respective roles, being respectful of others. And, you know, if the, the soonest you can really uh, master what is required of this stage is in late adolescence. And that's when you might call your, your teenage child uh, responsible. Okay, that's when you know that they have kind of accomplished what is needed to live responsibly in the world. Um, again, lots of music and romance is all around needing. I've had clients say to me, wait, but if we don't need each other, why would we be together? <laughs> right, is it kind of a very overt utilitarian idea in love as opposed to just a deep investment in and caring for another person for their own sake. So, Sexuality in this social stage is respectful, cooperative. This is how we often talk about it in church, that it's fulfilling one another's needs. Again, back to that role base, never compromising the other person. But it's really not yet choice-based, our sense of love and, and um, caring for others. Again, as well, because we care so much about belonging, just the framing of worthiness interviews speaks right to the fear of a stage two person, that your sexuality will undermine your value, your worthiness, whether or not you'll be lovable, right? So a lot of people fear that their sexuality will keep them from being accepted and worthy and loved by another, and that's why it's so hard to really inhabit their sexuality. Just a Howard W. Hunter quote right to this point of how we often talk about this at church. 
uh, tenderness and respect, never selfishness, must be the guiding principles in the intimate relationship between husband and wife. Each partner must be considerate and sensitive to the other's needs and desires. Very much a, a stage two idea. And I do also want to say that, you know, I, one of my people I taught on my mission, he was struggling with alcoholism, underemployed, impulses ran his life. He joined the church because he wanted to be a better man, he wanted to be a better father, and he now had this social group of expectations that helped him to elevate his functioning. He took on a role, took on a calling, had other peers that cared about what kind of father in person he was, and that allowed him to raise his functioning up to this very important stage. And so when we're operating within a sanctioned form of sexuality, that's when sexuality and spirituality can have a tiny bit of overlap, okay? When it's in the most sanctioned way. But we can still be very authority focused. We're still, you know, I get all kinds of questions all the time. Is this behavior okay? Is this behavior okay? Like, I'm trying to find someone to tell me if it's all right. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we need to go through that to help us know how to think. But ultimately, we want to move beyond this dependent stage. If we're really going to become capable of intimacy in marriage, intimacy in our relationships, a deep acceptance of ourselves, a deep acceptance of our sexuality, and this capacity to really experience the joy that we are capable of as human beings. So this next stage is what Keegan calls the self-authoring stage. This is where people move from an external authority to a deeper internal authority. That you go from what others think to what do I think, right? What, what do I believe? Okay, this is what my faith community believes. Who am I relative to those beliefs? Who am I in the world? Um, this is what Mary Beth Rains, an LDS therapist and thinker who wrote an excellent piece in Sunstone, like I think in 2001, on the sexuality and spirituality and moral development, a piece I strongly recommend. And she talks about this as this continental divide when you're moving from that external to the internal. And so we're going from other validation, I need you to be okay with me, for me to be okay with me, into a deeper internal or self-validation, that I am at peace with who I am, that I know God accepts me, that I am I'm loved, I'm, I matter in all my flaws and my ongoing development, but I am okay. And part of that coming into a real self-acceptance is not only just believing, literally, that we're known and loved, but it's also living in deeper integrity with ourselves, that we're not doing things to get others to tell us we're okay. We're taking our own honest assessment, our own honest judgment more seriously, and living in alignment with what we know and believe is true. And because that integrity is literally what makes you less anxious, less in pursuit or in need of other validation, and more willing to be knowable to others. And so we're actually able, even though we know our own minds better, we actually reference our own minds more deeply, we are paradoxically perhaps less self-preoccupied because we don't need to prove ourselves anymore. 
We're not trying to project something that's not true. We will let people in on how, who we are and how flawed we may in fact be. And so this is this, when you're in this external dependency, desire, I talk about this a lot in the coursework that I do, desire in that stage is what I might call wanting that it's coming from a place of emptiness and I want you to make me feel acceptable. This kills desire in marriages. If someone feels like they have to manage the ego needs of their partner or they've got to you know, fill a service for them, right? As opposed to in the self-authoring stage, this is where you start to desire out of wholeness. I don't need you, but I desire you. I value you. I'm grateful for you. I know you all of who you are and even how it's very different from me and yet I'm invested in your happiness not to make me okay but because I have something to give in this stage this is where your the right hand no longer needs to know what the left hand does because it's not trying to reinforce a sense of self outside of yourself and so desire in this stage is a deep form of valuing and choosing to love one other person, right? And it's a real, um, this ability to both be more deeply at peace with our sexuality because we know our sexuality is creating good in the world. To be at peace with ourselves because we know God accepts and loves us, inclusive of our sexuality. That we dare to be knowable, even the undeveloped parts of us because we dare to look at where we're in need of development uh, because we dare to lose our egos to find our strength, right? And so this is where couples can often talk about this deep sense of transcendence and connection that is a part of sexuality and spirituality, that they begin to experience a deep anchor and groundedness as well as transcendence through a kind of rich embodied love. And this is where we become capable of a kind of joy and celebration of life and celebration of one another that's so precious and so such a gift. And yet our ability to really come to know how sexuality is a pathway to our spirituality and vice versa is through this process of learning how to love, learning how to love ourselves, to accept ourselves, and to love one another. And marriage, this divine institution, is that workspace. It pressures us to face who we are, to face this frustratingly different person sometimes, and know what it is to see ourselves reflected in what they know about us and to have the courage to grow and to love and become more deeply capable of knowing and being known and knowing that some of that beauty and joy that's, that is a gift to all of us as children of God. So with that, I'll stop and then talk to Ty. <laughs> <laughs> Testing, testing, is this on? Yeah, you're on. <laughs> so, JFF. Yes. <laughs> I have to just, a funny aside. So, I'm a full I have a full-time clinical practice, and I would say a handful of times a week, somebody brings up something that they learned from JFF. <laughs> <laughs> J 
GFF, I was listening to GFF this week. <laughs> <laughs> this is what GFF said about that. Um, I think with that, I think it really, um, this is a little bit of, a, of an aside, but I think your contribution to this conversation in our community really cannot be overstated. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for Thank you. everything that Thank you. you do to better people. <laughs> So a couple of questions. So I, I have the opportunity to um, dialogue with Jennifer about a couple of things here. And, and as you can imagine, Jennifer is a really um, uh, one of the funnest dialogue partners that you could have <laughs> when talking about sexuality and spirituality. Now, one of, as you were talking about this frame, it's all about how the, a lot of this stage will, how it manifests itself, right? But also how marriage can pressure that. Mm. Uh, as of, what was it, uh, May or April General Conference 2021, we got the message that, you know, since 2019, more than half of all adults in the church are single. Yeah. So what would, what does the, well, I think there's two pieces here. There's this kind of broader question of what does the integration mm -hmm. of sexuality and spirituality look like for mm -hmm. singles? And even mm -hmm. as you think about some of these stages, Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they're not progressing, or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, okay, a couple thoughts. One is there's a lot of people having a lot of sex who aren't at all integrated with their sexuality. So having sex and being integrated are two different things, although there are probably limits on how much you can learn to love through sexuality if you're not in a partnered you know, experience. But I think... There are plenty of people who have even chosen a life of celibacy for given uh, reasons. They feel it's the most right thing, that there's a self-authorship in how they've determined to relate to their sexuality that's not at all about shame or a rejection of sex. In fact, in my, some of my dissertation research, the women who, I was really looking at women's integration of their sexuality moving into marriage, and the women who, the, the small minority of women who made that transition very comfortably had, out of a self-authoring frame, I didn't have the language for it then, but had this, they made a decision about how they were gonna be in relationship to their sexuality. So they accepted it as a good thing. They were excited about the fact that they were sexual beings, but they were actually quite conservative compared to the other women I interviewed in their behavior because they were actually safeguarding it as something rather very special, something that really mattered. So it wasn't a rejection or a shame and it didn't interfere with their sense of self, but they safeguarded it. And then, then when marriage opened up, then they moved readily into it because of that. So I think it's, and I think there's a lot of ways to express our embodiment and Eros energy in the world. And I think it really hinges on this sense of choosing who we will be, how we, how we fulfill the measure of our creation, whatever circumstance we're in. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. How much time do we have? Do we know? I think six, six minutes, minutes and 40 seconds. Um, <laughs> okay, so another question. And I want to ask this in the, in the, the context of parenting, right? Uh, Esther Perel, mm -hmm. right? She has this mantra of, tell me how you were loved, and I will tell you how you make love. Mm -hmm. So parenting, the way yeah. we parent our children really can impact how they yes. experience and integrate their sexuality. Within the values frame of the church, what would you recommend or speak to in terms of parents who want to, who, you know, there are these values that we frame as what we call the law of chastity, right? Mm -hmm. 
but who also want to really open up to and nurture and facilitate this development, right? Mm -hmm. Healthily. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? How do you hold those two things together? Yeah. Okay, good. So I think parents are living in this sort of duality of this is wonderful and not yet. And that's kind of a, it feels like a contradiction, but doesn't need to be a contradiction. So I think, first of all, the way the parents live, if you, if you think sex is a terrible thing, you're gonna have a hard time not communicating that to your children, no matter how much you tell them it's a beautiful thing, <laughs> okay? So you, you know, your children do track how you feel about your own embodiment, how you feel when your spouse touches you, how you feel in your own skin. And so you're giving a lot of messages around that, um, but you can really speak in terms of it's a bad and dangerous thing, or you can speak in terms of it's a beautiful, a potentially beautiful thing. And so how you, how you safeguard this, I mean, I think Carolyn Pearson talked about this in the interview she did with um, on, on the Faith Matters podcast around, you know, do you use it to shame or do you create a safety around it that's a celebration? And so, it, and if you really mean it, my kids get that. And so I think it's helping kids also to become also choosers, not fear-based, you know, I think we do way too much of fear-based and worthiness ideas that really actually interfere with our goal as opposed to it's a great thing and how you relate to it matters and how it affects you and others. It's a very powerful language. So being wise in how you relate to yourself and others with it is really critical. So you, it's a kind of elevation, but, uh, and you can say, you know, you can, you can be destructive with it. So you wanna safeguard in that sense, but you're really pointing them towards what's possible. So would it be safe to say that what we're modeling in terms of our own stage development is going to be one of the most powerful teachers? Yeah, exactly. And so you can give a stage three vision while shaping the environment at stage one needs and stage two needs. Like a teenager, you're going to give them safeguards that they can't, that you give them enough agency to start sorting out who they are, but you keep the stage three vision in mind and talk to them about that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, next question. Yeah. Um, and this came up from uh, a collective friend of ours. You, you had mentioned the idea about, um, right, because we have these different parts of us, our emotional self, our cognitive self, sexual, physical, relational selves, right? Mm -hmm. And we get different messages about each of those things, which can sometimes impact yeah. developing, or at least the potential to develop differently. Yeah. In different areas across these stages. Yeah. Um, so two questions within that. One, anything you would want to say to that? Because you mentioned something to that effect up here. Mm -hmm. But then also, uh, this, you know, friend of ours asked, could you be in a, could you be in stage three spirituality and stage one sexuality? Mm -hmm. Well, that question, I'm not sure yet. I keep thinking about that because I don't think, I don't think you can get that disparate where you really, so, uh, but I think you can certainly be, um, certainly more comfortable, okay, probably in this way. You can be self-authoring in terms of your career, okay? You could be self-authoring in terms of what you want to be. I think that's true. But have a real lag around, say, sexuality or how much you let people in on who you are and that kind of thing. One of the things that I really argue, you know, in the coursework that I do is that, it, and I say this to women a lot, because women, I think, are, are 
quicker to feel that their sexuality will interfere with their goodness or um, with their femininity. But I really think if you don't integrate your sexuality, it really kind of tethers you to the ground. It holds you back because there is something in being able to truly accept ourselves, to truly accept this beautiful body that our parents in heaven have given us and to love this body for how it serves us, for how it allows us to create and do, and to trust the body. Again, I'm, this is something Carolyn Pearson was saying, to trust the body, right? You, you need to bring your higher self to the body, but you trust the body because the wisdom that's a part of us knowing ourselves, knowing that internal anchor, that internal source of wisdom, that when we create that division, um, it really means that the whole project gets held up. And so I think it's a piece that, as Latter-day Saints, we really need to heal around, and we need to do a better job of teaching our children and learning within ourselves so that there's more actual joy. We talk about joy, but none of us actually believe we get to have it. <laughs> and, and I think as a stage three, in a more stage three position, you're more receptive to the beauty in the world, to the idea that a partner can actually love you as you are, so you're more able to receive that kind of nurturance and pleasure as well as give it generously. And I think God wants us to have that beauty as an antidote to the chaos and the difficulty that we also confront. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We have 30 seconds left, so I'm gonna, <laughs> we're going to own all 30 of those. I want to circle back, and this might be too long for us to spend very much time on, but um, with the singles question. Mm. And the idea, you said something to the effect of being able to channel Eros. Did you say that? that yeah. Mm -hmm. So I want to I investigate that for a second. Mm -hmm. Because we, I think, problematically have conflated intimacy and sex yeah. in our culture. Yeah. And that may be, some, whether it's an expression of anxiety or whatever with the S word, yeah, feel yeah. uncomfortable. Right. But there's a sense in which we've done ourselves a disservice right, in conflating those two. Yes. Where you could, there's lots of sex where there's no intimacy and there are ways to experience intim intimacy without sex. Right. So is there anything that you might speak to in terms of this, what, is, what would it mean as a single person to integrate sexuality with our spirituality and to be able to sublimate, to channel that mm -hmm. into deeper connection, intimacy on a human level? Yeah. You know, one of the things I tell clients is, you know, how we do human will be the greatest predictor of how we do marriage, right? Yeah, this is a big question, that I'll be very fast. It, just the Eros energy is expansive energy. It's what makes us feel alive. It's what is at the core of creativity. It's, it's what the core of happiness in marriage actually is when people feel that a marriage expands them, they're happier. And so one may, out of that self-authoring, make a decision to not engage their sexuality uh, in, another, in a relationship, but when it's done out of a choice, well, you have this creative energy. You are looking for other ways to express that energy into the world and to create and to offer out of your, you know, out of this way that you're living in your life. And so there's many ways to channel that powerful creative energy. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer from Lace and Fine. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.